Hello and welcome to The Stack. On this week's show, we speak with executive chef and author Sean Wynne Owen, plus music connoisseur Tom Bryan on his new book, The Number Ones, 20 chart-topping hits that review the history of pop music. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show on a very good note. We speak with Tom Bryan. He writes a column at Stereo Gun, where he reviews every single number one hit in the history of the Billboard Hot 100. It is such a delight. He also just published a new book, The Number Ones, 20 chart-topping hits that review the history of pop music. Here is Tom with more. Tom Bryan, what a pleasure to have you here at Monaco 24. I think especially because we're both, we're two charts aficionados here. So I think we have that thing in common as well. But first, I mean, before we talk about the book, which is fantastic uh, for anyone that appreciates the charts and a little bit more about the country, because I think you learn a lot about a country looking at their number one song. When did you come up with the idea for your amazing column at Stereogun? I believe since 2018, right? That's when it started. The, the idea is I'm reviewing every number one hit in the history of the Billboard Hot 100, which is our big chart here in America. And I I'm pretty much stole the idea outright from a guy in the UK named Tom Ewing, who's doing has been doing a column called Popular, where he's reviewing every UK number one. He's been doing that for years and years and years. And I reached out to him and got his blessing before, you know, sealing his idea and running with it over here. I started in 2018, you know, the Billboard Hot 100 launched in 1958. So I did all those, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, and I'm up in the, the early 2000s now. Was it a challenging? Because, of course, the idea is amazing. But sometimes you have number ones. I mean... What will I say about this number one? Or perhaps that's not the case. There's always something to be said. Give us in your opinion, were there some very hard number ones to write about? For me, I think the hardest ones to write about are the songs that everyone knows mm -hmm. and everybody already has opinions about. So like writing about the Beatles was a challenge mm -hmm. because it's like, what are you going to say about the Beatles that's new? What new ideas do you have? But One thing that I found really interesting is that so many of the number one hits over here have just been these like completely random forgotten little oddities or, you know, songs that kind of come and go. And maybe the singer for a band was a gym teacher and then he's famous for a couple of years and then he goes back to being a gym teacher, stuff like that. I love those stories. And so those ones, the songs where I don't know anything about it, those have been the most fun to write about, I think. And, you know, especially for a non-American like me, I agree with you. I like the oddities. You know, we're talking about Clay Aiken, which is, I mean, I don't think he was very popular outside the West, but I loved reading the story. You know, you found out quite a lot of things. The whole American Idol phenomenon, I mean, you know, every country has their own version of it, but it is really interesting to see how those kind of completely messed up the charts 
for like five years and then it doesn't really seem to have any impact anymore. It's like one of these things that came and went. Maybe we can talk this up later, not your favorite number one, but do you have a specific genre you prefer or even a period where you actually say, oh my God, there were a period of amazing number one songs. I wonder as a music critic, because I'm sure you're quite open to all sorts of music. Oh, sure. Yeah. I love pretty much every kind of pop music, but my favorite, at least in terms of like stuff that could potentially top the charts is I love rap music. And so right now I'm writing about the songs of 2004. That is a stretch of time that I just love when this was the year when I believe every number one song in America was from a black or Latino artist. Most of them were rap or R&B and most of them are just songs that I love. And, you know, the amount of creativity on a very high level was just exploding all over the place. That was like Usher's big year. And so that that's the stuff that I'm just right in my element right now. I love writing about this stuff. The very last one I read, I think it's the newer one, is uh, Usher, yeah, right? Which, yeah. I mean, we still hear it today, everywhere. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's a song that everyone knows that I am still excited to write about, just because it was so visceral, it was such a moment, it was so much fun. I have very, very fond memories attached to it. But the new book, it's still kind of about number ones, but it's completely different because you have to select. It's called The Number Ones, 20 Chart-Topping Hits That Reveal the History of Pop Music. So you actually had to do a selection of all those songs. And I have to ask, I mean, because, of course, looking at some of the artists here, the Beatles, the Supremes, you have Britney Spears, clearly they created history. But what was, how did you actually choose those 20 songs? It was it was fun to kind of think about. And, and so the idea of the book is it's the book's an extension of the column. And I picked 20 songs that I feel like kind of changed history or marked a moment where pop music history branched off in some different direction. So the first rap song that reached number one in the U.S. was Ice Ice Baby by Vanilla Ice, which is embarrassing on all sorts of levels. But the fact that that was a number one song and that was the first real like rap song to reach number one, that makes it historically important. So I get into like why it took so long for a rap song to reach number one and why this goofy white guy was the, the first person to do it. And so the process of picking out those songs and being like, well, here's another like point where things diverged and this other sound, this other idea or approach or whatever came in, that it was a lot of fun. Some of them were super obvious. You know, I Want to Hold Your Hand by the Beatles. That's like obviously a moment when culture just changed when, when the Beatles showed up in America. But like something like um, Prank That Soldier Boy, you know, I was around for that one. I, I remember it clearly. It was a song that I think a lot of people did not take seriously at the time. But the approach where it's just literally a teenage kid on his computer using a downloaded like plug-in and making a, this dance craze song that becomes this like giant hit. It was a real game changer that had never happened before. Pre-TikTok. So, uh, yeah. Now that the book is out, I'm kind of wishing I did a chapter on Old Town Road because that was sort of the, the fact that TikTok is now 
like that's what makes hit songs that that's a new thing and maybe i should have gone into that a little bit deeper I was very happy because I love synth pop, you know, especially from the 80s. I love that you included uh, the Human League. Don't you want me? Because I think it was quite influential, right? I mean, even though I think you said it, it might have lasted a specific movement not very long, but I think it influenced a little bit, even even the music today. pop too like that's that is some of my favorite stuff and so obviously i think my my own personal tastes come into how i put the thing together but the human league thing that was a moment they called it the second british invasion over here when mtv came in and became this really important factor in kind of driving the pop charts and these like glammy made up british new wave acts were way more visually grabbing than the stuff that had been popular in America at the time. These like studio rock bands, like a journey and Ario Speedwagon and all these bands were clearly struggling with this whole new MTV thing. Whereas, you know, the human league, Duran Duran, soft cell, they were all right there. They all knew how to present themselves in this new way. And I think the history of pop music really changed the culture club. Like America had nothing like culture club or Depeche Mode or, or any of these groups. Not all of them made it to number one, but the way they came in, I think it changed the way Americans listen to music. And I'll ask you a question. I have a feeling I know what you're going to say because I have a feeling you might agree with me on this one, but some people say these days, do charts matter? You know, because there's been a lot of changes, the way we consume music with streaming. I mean, I would say, yes, it's just different perhaps than what we grew up with. But are you still excited to look every, I think, Tuesday or Wednesday at the Billboard website and say who is number one today? I am always excited. They usually come out Monday afternoon. Monday the afternoon. new Hot 100 comes out over here. I think it's really interesting now because uh, Billboard has over the year changed the way it puts the Hot 100 together. It used to be sales of 45 RPM singles and radio play. Radio play still matters. Single sales, which are all digital, or you know, mostly digital now, that still matters too. But it's mostly driven by streaming now. But I think the idea of a number one song, even though the way we consume and process and receive those songs, that's all changed. The idea of like the song being the biggest thing in the country at any one moment, I think that still matters. And I think, if anything, it might matter more now because I think fans and fan armies like these like online groups have really taken up the cause of like pushing their favorite artists to number one whenever possible i don't remember that ever having been a case before like you would be like oh this song i like is number one this week that's cool but i don't remember there ever being like a concerted effort to push a song there and now you see that all the time it used to be record labels or sometimes artists themselves like pushing really hard to try to land that number one spot and now it's actual like groups of fans like it's happening from the bottom up i think that's fascinating i think it's so interesting and you have curious cases like one of the songs in the book as well by bts dynamite which also represents a little bit how the american charts are opening up so yes a south korean artist can be number one yeah we've had a few spanish language number ones mm. in the past couple of years that's been That would happen every once in a while. Like you would get a number one hit in a different language, but it would usually be a weird kind of novelty. Macarena. Like 
Yeah, sure. The Macarena, Dominique by the Singing Nun, Rock Me Amadeus, like that kind of thing. But now it's like, like now you could argue easily that BTS are the biggest stars in the world and that America is just like a market for them. Like it's an important one. Is it more important than Japan to BTS? I don't know. Probably not, honestly. And I think that's so interesting. What is actually the song you're writing at the moment? I don't know if you can tell us. It's Usher again right now. I wrote it yesterday. It's Burn. That year, 2004, Usher had four number ones. Uh, he owned the Hot 100 that year. So it's, yeah, I've got a whole lot of Usher coming up. And it's funny, the charts are about passion. You mentioned about the fans, armies. I mean, I mean of course, today's much bigger. I remember in the early noughties, I was quite a big fan of Madonna. I even wrote a letter to Billboard. Why is she not doing well in the charts? I think she released American <laughs> Life. And, and I actually replied, say, well, she's not selling <laughs> well. But yeah, I remember right. I was young, I was like, what's happening? Why is she not selling? <laughs> that, was a, that, that, was, that was rough. That was rough times for Madonna. Yeah, she bounced back. She never got to number one again after after music, but she had a, a an amazing historic run. And uh, yeah, that's a. I went back and forth about putting her in the book because I've got Michael Jackson in there and I've got Prince in there. I couldn't think of one particular Madonna song that kind of like crystallized everything. I write about her a bit in the book, and I've certainly written about her a lot in the column. But uh, I think that if Material Girl had gone to number one, that would have been a chapter in the book, but it was a number two hit here, so it doesn't make it in. I'm not saying anything, perhaps a second book on the on the, on the best number I, twos I in the US? <laughs> that would be cool. It's, I, you know, who knows if anyone's going to want me to write a book again after this, but there are definitely, there's so much more story to tell, so it would be a fun project to tackle for sure. Thank you very much, Tone. And his book is out now. The number ones, 20 chart-topping hits that review the history of pop music. Enhance the year to come and treat yourself or someone special with a Monocle subscription this festive season. Monocle offers something that you won't find elsewhere. A truly international perspective and unrivaled insights into business, culture, design and more. A present that lasts all year, bringing big ideas, stories of opportunity, and plenty of optimism direct to your door. When you subscribe, you'll get a 10% discount in our shops and online, and of course, a free limited edition tote bag. As well as 10 issues of the magazine, you'll receive our annual specials and access to our exclusive digital travel guides. To round out our 15th anniversary year, For a limited time only, there's 15% off with code RADIO15. And now back to London. London's iconic Michelin-starred restaurant, the River Café, have launched a new cookbook. 
The River Cafe Lookbook, recipes for kids of all ages, with over 100 pages of visuals and 50 easy-to-make recipes influenced by River Cafe classics, executive chef and one of the book's authors, Sean Wynne Owen, sat down at the restaurant with Monaco's head of radio, Tom Edwards, to explain how the concept was developed. One of the things I worry about, having been a chef for 30 years, is a bit of an aside from the book, I suppose, is whether restaurants are, are going to be a dinosaur. Like, you know how tea dances, people used to go to tea dances and now people think they're quaint, do they exist, you know? Restaurants, you think, they are, are they going to be a dying breed as the big, you know, um, delivery companies, you know, to make, bring food to your home? And even in lockdown, we, we set up Shop the River Cafe, which is now quite a successful part of our business. But coming to eat in a restaurant is quite expensive. It's an expensive thing. But, you know, to make your staff, to, to keep your, you know, the restaurant industry is in crisis, isn't it? Like, yeah. you know, some restaurants can't even be open five days a week or seven days a week because of staffing problems. And, and so that is something that we took a real serious look at here as a business, actually, after lockdown, especially trying to make people feel like they wanted to come back and and stand up all day and cook you know because it's quite a sort of tough gig isn't it but it, se- it seems to have worked incredibly well and do, do you attribute that to um is it kind of payback for this sort of generational impact on british cooking and, and the london scene that river cafe's had is it to do with the focus of you and your, the leadership team here on ensuring that people all those same values they felt yeah. like they had a warm yeah. welcome they experienced great seasonal yeah. food yeah and you didn't have to change everything too much is that why because this this dining room is whenever you come here it's always absolutely heaving it doesn't yeah. seem like you've had to struggle to get certainly the customers back i don't think we've had to struggle to get customers back but we've had to i found like running a team of, of trying to meet people where they want to be so previously you might a chef might do five or six shifts a week but now people want to do maybe four or they want to have three days off and reconfigure their shifts so they do maybe six shifts in three days and I just think I'll meet people where they want to be to ensure that you know they still come to work and especially working parents just had a chef now who he's a 20 something year old man and I just heard but that his, he wants to go away for Christmas and New Year, whatever. I just think, if I was a 20-year-old man, I'd want to go away for, to Mexico in January. Why not, you know? <laughs> and I just think, he wants to take a month off. And most businesses would be like, oh, you only get two weeks. I just think, let him have his month. And then when he comes back, he'll be like, yeah, yeah, I've still got a job. He comes back, he's happy. We're, you know, it's about meeting people where they want to be, I think, that keeps them here. But I feel like that's not everyone's worked that out. So that's all about the employer being like, oh, this is how we run it. Whereas for us, I think, you know, I'll meet you where you need to be so you come and work for us. You know, that's, I take that quite, quite seriously. And do you think it's because you've got so many um, super senior women running this business that you're better at that? Because it strikes me that there are businesses, I think, where... The leadership team may be skew a bit male. They are more inflexible. Maybe I'm gender stereotyping, but do, do you think it helps? Stereotyping. I think that I'm not exactly sure. We, we take a lot of pride in in how we look after the team. I pay is really important. You know, the value. So I always think I want them to feel like they want to come to work. But there's also no shame in saying I want to go home. Like, amazing. Yeah. 
Why not? Like, because if you go, why should you be, the chefs shouldn't be so frazzled that when they go home, they just want to go and open a can of beans. You know, they need to be, go home and cook or go home and cook for friends or go and eat out or even read a book about food or, you know, listen to a pro, you know, and that's as important as being in work. So I really value their their work-life balance. Mm. It's, it's like, and I think that, you know, that old-fashioned idea of chefs having to be like, you know, 10 shifts a week covered in burns and cuts and all knackered looking you're like what is with that I mean also because it's not like the bestly paid profession generally so you need, you need to like work life balance is what it's all about yeah well it's always an incredibly happy always an incredibly happy shop yeah. it seems in here when, when I'm lucky enough to, to stop by um, let me ask you a bit more Sean about your <coughs> culinary inspiration interesting talking yeah. about a chef going to Mexico I mean one can only imagine the sorts of culinary experiences you yeah. can enjoy on that kind of thing again I guess everyone was locked down for a while has that really made you double down on making sure you get out into the world and experience new things and meet different people and eat different foods eat in different ways share with other people where does that kind of day to day inspiration for the next great idea for you where does that come from I think I don't know like for us travelling to Italy like not being able to go to Italy was really brutal Mm. because just to go and and breathe the air and look at how you know clean the streets are and go and drink an aperitivo or and uh, we just came back from Tuscany actually and and the food was so simple there and I was saying to the chefs because we took a load of chefs look how simple it is like you could just have a piece of meat and some beans some olive oil not forget that like people have a tendency to overcomplicate things and when you go to Italy remember how how simple it is and how you know, a piece of bread with, or a piece of toast with just rubber garlic and you seasons olive oil. It's literally nothing better. Um, so what about, what would you be most proud of, you know, any kid that, you know, is gifted the book for yeah. Christmas? Um, it's available in good bookshops now from the Roof Cafe yeah. shop. Um, or, yeah, happens upon it at home and starts leafing through the page. What, what do you, what would most excite you about literally looking through that, those sort of child's eyes at, at, at the book just to fire passion and curiosity about food or what, what kind of reaction do you all hope to um, to achieve it, you know, a lot of a few of my friends who I've given the book to have sent me pictures of the things their kids have cooked from them and that makes me feel really happy because I think the recipes are simple enough that they I, I I personally think they're for that eight, that that younger or you know very beginner chef or young person, and they're so simple that, that I, don't think, I think they're pretty foolproof, and that feels like they are just have a go with them, and all those pictures that they think oh I like I like the look of that have a go because they actually do do work and they're very you know I feel quite excited at the thought of there's a lot of pasta recipes there that are quite easy you know and. Not maybe not like some of the other River Cafe books that might be more technical. They're just really, yeah, nice, nice and simple, simple recipes. If you're a very accomplished chef, maybe just buy it for the pictures. Thank you very much, Sean and Tom. The River Cafe lookbook, Recipes for Kids of All Ages, is available now. Well, that's it for this week's show. My thanks as ever to our editors David Stevens and Tamsin Howard. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpandmonaco.com. Meanwhile, you can always listen again at monaco.com or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. 
And before we go, a little song for you. One of my favorite American number ones. It's Madonna with music. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. Thank you.